Hi, Sarah. Hi, Alison. So we're back mm-hmm. after unexpectedly skipping the last show. Yeah, <laughs> and since we last chatted, Emmanuel Macron has got re-elected. And after three weeks of hesitation, France also now has a new prime minister. And it's a premier ministre, a woman, mm-hmm. 61-year-old Elisabeth Bonne, the former Labour minister. Her official title is premier ministre, mm. so a feminization of premier ministre. That's interesting. Though yeah. she's not the first woman mm-hmm. in office. France had one other female prime minister, the socialist Edith Cresson, back in 1990. Yeah, that was a short-lived term, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, she had the job for just 10 months. Cresson said recently that she'd suffered hugely from sexism in politics and including from her own colleagues. Oh, wow. Uh, Bonne paid tribute to Cresson during her very short acceptance speech this week. And Bourne also encouraged little girls to follow their dreams. That was that was touching. Yeah. Macron was under pressure to put a woman in the position and, mm. and someone with a slightly more left-leaning profile than her predecessor, Jean Castex. Yeah, because Macron, of course, won the presidency thanks to a large number of left-wingers and Greens. Yeah. Uh, but the, uh, they were not voting for him, no. but to keep far-right Marine Le Pen out of power. Indeed, yeah. There was sort of a strategic voting going mm. on there. And so Macron had to or has to attempt to satisfy them. Mm-hmm. Um, he's promised his second term will be different with a lot more attention to ecology. He's mm-hmm. also renamed his République en marche, Republic on the Move political movement. It's now called Renaissance, oh. for whatever it's worth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of discussion as well about whether or not Bonn really is on the left. Yeah. Uh, she was chief of staff in a previous socialist government, but she's not really what you'd call a left winger. Sure. She is a hardworking technocrat, although she's never held elected office. And she she was minister of transport, minister of labor. I mean, she's yeah. definitely held ministerial positions. Mm. She she comes into the position as prime minister with a lot on her plate. Mm. I mean, regardless of what's going on internationally, France also is looking at its ecological transition and a very controversial pension reform. Yeah, which Macron is absolutely determined to mm-hmm. push through this time round, yeah. uh, taking uh, retirement age uh, up to maybe uh, 65. But Bourne's most immediate concern, perhaps, is getting Macron's party through next month's legislative elections and getting herself elected as Mm -hmm. an MP so that she can most likely hang on to her job. Um, Will she have an easier time than Edith Cresson did back in the 1990s? Almost certainly. There are a lot more women MPs now than there were back then. Will she usher in a more women-led government? Not sure. To get a feminist take on her appointment and a better sense of whether it matters that she's a woman, I spoke to political journalist, writer and podcast host Léa Chamboncel, and she has mixed feelings about Bon. I've been advocating for more women in politics. That's the title of the book I just wrote. So obviously I'm happy it's a woman. She has a very interesting career. She's um, She comes from a very modest background and she's been working very hard to get where she is so i consider that uh, elizabeth bond deserves it and also it's a good signal you know the symbol itself is important it's been 30 years she's only the second and we see it here as a big event and it shouldn't be it should be like okay it's a woman that's cool um or it's a man never mind that's cool too But the thing that it's such a big event, it says a lot on how underrepresented women are in politics in France still today. And I hope one day we won't have to point out that she's a woman. But we're here talking about (laughs) it today and it is interesting nonetheless. 
The thing is that I doubt that she will have a lot of power. She's going to be implementing when Macron wants her to implement. I see that she has the same profile as uh, Jean Castex, her predecessor. They're not political. You know, they're very good civil servants, both of them, but they don't have any political strategy to be like the next president or anything. And she's never been elected. She never ran for any election. She's running now for the legislative election. So that's interesting. And what it says is that um, Emmanuel Macron doesn't want anyone next to him that could take the light out of him. So you think that Macron, in a way, chose her as someone who would not be in the limelight? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But we don't know what's going to happen within a month. You know, there is a upcoming election, so... Yeah, if she doesn't get elected uh, in Cavados where she's running, yeah. it will be awkward, won't it? Strictly speaking, she can still be prime minister, but she yeah. won't feel very comfortable, I guess. Well, in 2017, the rule was that Emmanuel Macron told his ministers, if you aren't elected and you're running for the parliamentary elections, you won't be able to come back to at the government. And it's a, it's a classic rule, you know, like, as you said, it's very hard to say, oh, the French people didn't elect me, but I am prime minister. So it's a bit risky and we need to see how it goes. Um, just help us to understand, Leia, how far France has come, because if we go back to 1990, when France's first female prime minister was appointed, Edith Cresson, socialist. She only lasted 10 months for a start. Yeah. She said herself just recently that she faced a lot of misogyny, yeah. even from within her own party. Now, if you look at 2017, we had, you know, gender equality in Macron's government. 38% of MPs are now female. It looks like things have improved radically. Well, I can't agree with that. So, yeah, the numbers... Yeah, you mentioned 38% of women in the National Assembly, which is, yeah, fair enough, okay. It's been over seven years that women are allowed to run for office. And we needed to wait till 2000 to have a law in order to have more women. Because between 1944 and 2000, there were only below 10% of women in the National Assembly. So it means that the political class is so sexist, it's so dominated by men that we needed to implement quotas, basically, in order for women to be able to be in the institutions. And even after that, we needed to wait 20 more years, 17 years after the parity law, to have 38% of women, not 50%. And anyone who wants to see improvement and say that in 2022 it's okay that women are still that underrepresented in politics in France is wrong. Because the problem is still there. The reality between the numbers is that a lot of women do want to run for office and can't. A lot of women are appointed, are elected and don't have much power. And who decides are still men. You see, there were two pictures week after the presidential election, the second round. One picture with four men. Stanislas Guérini, Richard Ferrand, François Béraud, Edouard Philippe. They were the four men that were going to decide who were going to be appointed by the party Renaissance to run for the parliamentary elections. So four this is men. a kind of centrist alliance, centre-right alliance. alliance. To run for the National Assembly. On the other hand, 
You had Jean-Luc Mélenchon, Olivier Faure, Julien Bayou et Fabien Roussel. Four men. Four men that were going to decide who were going to run for the election for the left parties. So what I see is that today the political destiny of a woman is still decided by men, mostly. And this is a problem. And this has to change. So a long way to go. Yeah, but there's no point ranting and raving, right? <laughs> You've got to be part of the change. And Léa Chamboncel is. She's also a writer. She just published a book, as she said, Plus de femmes en politique, more women in politics. It's based on interviews she did with 59 women, activists or elected officials from most political parties except the far right. Uh, yeah, She says that uh, they don't really need her help. I That's see. That's the way that she put That's it. Interesting. And in November 2020, she launched a political podcast, Popola in which she interviews women politicians and civil society leaders and so on working for social change. She says getting these voices heard is her way of helping France's male-dominated political culture to evolve. We have the impression that often when it comes to politics, we don't want women to give their opinion. And I thought that it was necessary to give my, my microphone basically to the women that do politics on the ground and also are interested in politics just to remind them that they're allowed and legitimate to have an opinion. And the podcast is also a way to say to women, politics is your affair. So in your podcast, you only interview women. Yes. So it's an exclusively female space. It is absolutely exclusively female for two reasons. First of all, I wanted to create this safe place. You know, I'm a political editor. And when I go on TV, sometimes I arrive there, I push the door before entering the studio and I see three men. Three men over 60s that look at me and really look at me like I don't know anything about politics. And the look they have means... I don't really know what you're doing here. And it's not very comfortable when you're women. How do you deal with that? I don't go anymore. I just don't want to go to medias in which I know someone is going to cut me off as, a, as I'm talking. I just go in the medias where I feel comfortable now. There are some. I love going on France 24. I like going to France Info. This is public media. It's public media. I didn't really have the best experiences on private media, I must say. Did you feel that you were, in a way, the token female sometimes? Was that what, what was happening? Young, yeah, the young and female token. It's also this feeling you have also that you're not in the right place. So I needed to create this safe place for women where they're not cut off when they talk, when we take them serious also when they talk. And the second thing is that also I wanted to have a way of talking about politics, a different way of talking about politics, because I'm absolutely passionate about politics. It's my passion. I sleep politics, I drink politics, I read politics, I eat politics. Everything I do is around politics. And I'm very uncomfortable with the fact that when we talk about politics, it's rather boring or violent. And I was thinking that maybe we needed to change the rules of how we talk about politics. So I just guessed and tried. It was, you know, a bet to do it with just women. And It's actually very cool. And there's a lot of men that write to me and say, thank you so much. We get different point of views. We hear people that we never hear. And the debate is calm and interesting. So I think, you know, the better I made was actually a good bet. It's interesting that you say you have male listeners. A lot. Because if we want to get 
more women into politics, women talking about politics, women's opinions on politics being listened to. They are 51% of the population mm -hmm. after all. Can it happen without having men on board? Can the transformation no. happen without men? The transformation won't happen without men. And as well as the transformation won't happen without the women that aren't feminist, <laughs> basically. Everyone has to be a feminist. Maybe it's also a matter of generation, but what you see today that a lot of men are ready for the change. And a lot of men are pushing for this change. And it's very encouraging. And I'm very enthusiastic about the change that is coming up. So that was Léa Chamboncel, host of the Popol Politics podcast. If you understand French, go and check it out wherever you get your podcasts. So now back in history to the 17th century, May 19th, 1643 to be exact, 379 years ago today, to the Battle of Rocroi, a symbolically important battle for France as it marked the beginning of the end of Spanish dominance on the war field and the rise of France in Europe. Right before the battle took place, King Louis XIII died and his four-year-old son, Louis XIV, took over. This battle occurred right as he became king, and so this really did line up symbolically with the beginning of the French emergence as the dominant power in European history. I know that voice, mm -hmm. yeah. It's Gary Gerard, her host of the French History Podcast, who's been on, on our show several times now. Yeah, yeah, and we, we talked about this battle where the French beat the seemingly invincible Spanish army just as the Sun King was taking power. So 1643, this is towards the end of the Thirty Years' War, right? Yeah, yeah. So that started in 1618 as a rebellion of mostly Protestant regions of the Holy Roman Empire against the Catholic Habsburg monarchy, which ruled both Spain and Austria at the time. In 1635, France joined the fray, supporting actually the Protestant states against the Habsburgs. Defeating the Habsburgs is more important than divisions in theology. And so France joins in this war, and even though they end up winning against some of the Austrians and their allies, they struggle against the Spanish, because the Spanish have this reputation as this incredible fighting force. So this reputation comes from the way they waged war. They used what was called the Tercio Formation, so mixing sword and spear-carrying infantry with cavalry and gunmen. What the Tercios did is essentially they were a pike and shot formation where you have a core army that is primarily pikemen and then off to the sides you have a number of gunmen and the gunmen shoot at their enemies forcing them to engage at which point they will be drawn headlong into a great forest of spears and the tercio system because it was so successful initially going back to the early 1500s you end up with an enormous amount of veterans who pass on their knowledge and it becomes this tradition feared across europe so how did france manage to beat this 
fearsome army. Yeah, well, so it's a series of events that led to it. So in 1642, France tried and failed to invade the Austrian Netherlands, which then emboldened the Spanish. Mm -hmm. They decided to invade France from the north. They lay siege to Rocroi, which is a fortified city, which is on the border of what is now Belgium. The Spanish are besieging the city when an army led by Louis de Bourbon, who will later become known as the Grand Condé for his success in war. He arrives with a army of 23,000. The Spanish have an army of 27,000. It is actually a Spanish force which is supplemented by Germans and Walloons. And so the French arrive and the Spanish decide that they're going to put aside the siege to meet with the French force. And that is when the battle ensues. Now, remember, um, in the 17th century, battles were quite orchestrated. I mean, you had one side facing mm. off the other with their swords and spears and sort of rushing into battle, kind yeah. of what you see Theatrical. in Game, Game of Thrones or that kind of <laughs> thing. And very bloody, very, very bloody. Though Gary says that with gunpowder and guns, wars were changing. These kind of full-on battles were becoming less frequent because they were becoming even bloodier. But those that did happen were often very crucial for how a war turned out. And so here in 1643, the French face off the Spanish Tercio army with their own new tactics. What happens is the French develop what is essentially the line formation. They are firing upon the Spanish uh, neither side are engaging in what might be the more traditional head-on, you know, pikes versus pikes, sword versus sword. Most of this comes down to a gun battle, except on the two flanks where there is the cavalry engagement. The French cavalry ends up defeating the Spanish cavalry. And it's at this point that the Germans and the Walloons end up leaving the battlefield. Huh. So they say this is not a fight that's worth it for us. Let's get out of here. They're not going to die for Spain. So then it is just the French versus the Spanish. And because the French have free reign and they can bring their weapons to bear, particularly gunpowder weapons, they end up decimating the Spanish. The defeat of a Spanish Tercio army in a open battle was an enormous shockwave across Europe. But of course, the war doesn't end. How did that then evolve into a shift from Spanish dominance to French dominance in Europe? So the war essentially lingers on till 1648, at which point a peace is declared. But afterwards, Spain is a power in decline. And it had been in decline for a while. There conquest of the new world was not as lucrative as it was in the beginning. Meanwhile, France is experiencing a very large growth in population. They're becoming much wealthier, and they are developing a remarkable reputation on the battlefield, something which is really going to come to a head during the reign of Louis XIV, the Sun King, as France becomes the great power of Europe. Could we say this is a pivotal moment in the sense that if things had turned differently, you know, would we see a very different course of French history? Absolutely. And I think that it is pretty remarkable that here there had been discussions of forming a peace. And yet, had France 
actually signed a truce and armistice with Spain, this battle might not have happened. The fact that France didn't make a peace actually ended up being quite in its benefit in the long run. That was Gary Gerard, host of the French History Podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. On va passer un dimanche au coude En famille, en pratique, l'on soit riche ou non C'est un plaisir que personne ne boude Le rêve marseillais, un soir d'été au cabanon Oui, passer un dimanche au coude En famille, en pratique, l'on soit riche ou non C'est un plaisir que personne ne boude so we now head to the south of France, to Marseille, on the coast. A big attraction there are the cliffs along the Mediterranean. They form what is called Calanque. There are 26 Calanques between Marseille and Cassis to the east. It's a beautiful spot, Sarah. Mm. Yeah, I've went, never been there. Ah, oh, well, I was lucky. I went a couple of years ago. But mm. on a boat, looking up at those cliffs, uh, you can get a beautiful view when you hike along the top of them. But lately, they become a bit too popular. Yeah, yeah. The people running the national park are trying to figure out what to do because all these visitors are causing problems. Our colleague Isabel Martinetti went to see what's going on and she joins us now. Hi, Isabel. Hi there. Hi. Yes, uh, I went along the Sujiton Calanque um, last Monday. It's uh, closest to Marseille. Um, the Calanque is a tiny creek with uh, translucent water. It's surrounded by pine trees and people like to swim and relax on the beach. Sounds really nice. <laughs> yeah, it's really nice. And uh, to get there, you walk on a trail from Lumini University, it's part of Marseille, and walk 45 minutes. The beach is only 20 meters long. Hmm. Oh. So, it draws so you walk 45 minutes down through these trails and you get to this tiny beach. Uh, actually, yes, that's the, that's the <laughs> idea. And uh, it draws mainly locals and tourists during summertime. During the summer, more than 2,000 people come here each day. Each day. Wow. And uh, when I was there on Monday morning at 10 a.m., there were already dozens of people on the trail to the beach in large school groups. So, and this isn't even the summer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but not everyone stays on the official trails. Ah, mm. and why is that a problem? Well, actually, it erodes the soil and exposes roots of pine trees. Um, also, people who dive into the water in the Kalong erode the cliffs. Mm. And uh, I saw people picnicking on the rocks, which is part of the problem, too. And this all has been getting worse over the years, and it's going very quickly. Ah. And it's gotten worse during the pandemic. Yeah, of course. People were so desperate, weren't they, to get out of the house and into the fresh air. <gasps> exactly. And it has reached the point where the National Park wants to limit the number of people visiting mm -hmm. uh, rather than having to close the site completely. Okay. So this would be like, what, issuing permits like you see in some national parks in the United States? Yes. Uh, actually, from the end of June through the summer, people have to apply online for a permit to walk along the Sujiton Calanque and down to the beach. Hmm. And it will be limited to 400 people a day. 400? So, yeah, so that's just 20% of what you were saying was the summer peak. Yes, and they are still trying to figure out how these permits will work. Mm. But for now, it's first come, first serve for a free permit. Will it be at the permit or only for a few hours? Also, it's unclear how many permits someone can ask during the season. Mm. Yeah, so I guess like, you know, still under, you know, testing all that, they have a month to figure this out. Imagine you talk to some people about this. How are they feeling about being limited to this area? 
locals are worried that this will limit access to what they see as their backyard. Sure, yeah. I met Solène, a student at the Lumini University, where the trail to the Kalong starts. Mm. She goes there frequently in her free time. Je trouve ça dommage à l'origine parce que ben on va pas pouvoir euh, y avoir accès librement quand on veut. It's too bad because we will not have access when we want, she says. But on the other hand, if it can help preserve the site, make people respect the environment and the beauty of the site, then why not? And then there was Didier, a tourist from the Vaucluse region, a bit to the north of Marseille. Globalement, je suis favorable à cette restriction. I am basically in favor of limiting access, he says. We have the same problem in the Vaucluse with sites that have a lot of visitors. If you can save these areas, this is a good solution to preserve the environment. So the Kalank clearly not the only places that are having this problem. No, but the permits would be a first for France and for Europe. Mm -hmm. And this test could be repeated elsewhere. But we'll have to see how this is put in place. The park is worried about enforcing the permits. And the majority of people who come to the Kalank are actually locals. Going to the Kalank is a regular part of daily life, and they'll stop by often at the last minute. Mm. And the park is worried about having to enforce these permits on people who are not expecting it. Right, right. When you get to the entrance of the trailhead, and then suddenly a security guard pops up and says, permit, please. Mm. Yeah, and things could get tense, especially when it's really hot in the summertime. And it does get hot. Yeah. It does, yes. <laughs> And we've come to the end of the show. Spotlight on France is a production of the English service of Radio France International. Well, this episode was mixed by Cécile Pompiani. If you have any questions or comments, why not send us an email at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. Or look for us on Instagram, Spotlight on France. You can also find previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be back on Thursday, June the 2nd. Bye-bye, Sarah. Bye, Alison. Il fait chaud. Les oiseaux sortent si